You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled A Psychology of Body, Soul, and Spirit. This is Lecture 11, given on December 15, 1911, entitled Imagination, Imagination, Inspiration, Self-Fulfillment, Intuition, Conscience. We saw yesterday that in a sense there is proof of the existence of the spirit for ordinary consciousness, if that consciousness has the appropriate self-understanding. We found that for this ordinary consciousness, to begin with, error and the possibility of overcoming error are evidence of the presence of spirit. In order to understand this, we drew on an attribute of the spirit that appears self-evident. We call it supersensibility, for our case was built on the fact of error having to have its roots in the supersensible. I said that it obviously is not possible to cite all the details to thoroughly prove such a statement, though that could be done. It could actually be a very interesting matter to show how the possibility of error turns up first in the realm to which we ascend in freeing ourselves from the compulsion of the external world, in freeing ourselves from all that which we can know through sense perception. Only a single fact is needed to indicate the method that shows that only human beings can be exposed to the temptation of error as a result of their relationship to the physical world, that is, exposed through their own inner nature and being. It has been shown on other occasions how, in a basic sense, modern science, too, has provided proof for the findings of spiritual science. The only trouble is that the adherents of modern science do not interpret its proofs in a sufficiently unprejudiced manner. Take, for example, a fact such as that established by the natural scientist Huber, 1777-1840. He examined a caterpillar that was just spinning its cocoon. There are caterpillars that spin their cocoons in a series of stages, so that one can speak of their being in the first or second or third stage, and so on. Huber took a caterpillar that had reached the third stage of its spinning and placed it in another caterpillar's cocoon, that had already completed the sixth stage. A strange thing happened. The caterpillar that had reached the third stage only and had then been transferred to another cocoon, that of a caterpillar that had completed all six stages, continued calmly on its normal course, despite some problems, spinning not a seventh and eighth stage, but the fourth and fifth stage. It thus followed its instinctive course from the stage that it had completed on its own. In other words, it followed an unerring directive within its own being, an inner life that can follow only itself. 
when such a caterpillar that had arrived at the third stage was taken out of its own cocoon and put into another cocoon where the third stage was complete, it calmly continued to finish this cocoon in a regular manner. There, there also it was following not an external impression, but its own inner drive to spin the fourth stage after the third. However, it also did this despite receiving an external impression of already having completed the sixth stage. <clears throat> this is an extraordinarily interesting fact, for it shows that in creatures of the animal kingdom, external impressions cannot bring about the effect that in human beings can be described as right or wrong, as belonging in the sphere of the possibility of error. We human beings are susceptible to error from external causes, because we are so organized that we do not simply follow inborn drives and impulses. In our acts we are obliged to follow impulses entering us from without. In that sense we see that only human beings confront an external world. This is basically the source of all the delusions that people can harbor in reference to the spirit. There is a close connection here. Today we find, excuse me, today to find from the scientific outlook the right link to our spiritual scientific view concerning the spirit, we want to look once again at how that intelligent modern psychologist Brentano characterized the soul and its capacities. I will make a diagram to help us find the right transition to the realm of the spirit. Brentano divided the soul capacities as I reported in the first lecture, into mental picturing, judging, and what we could call the movements of the soul, the phenomena of love and hate. If we think of the whole area of soul life as distributed in this way, we would have to say that on closer scrutiny, mental picturing and the movements of the soul are differently related to the soul than are judging and deliberating. That is just what that psychologist claims. He separates judging from mental picturing in such a way that judging is something different from a mere combination of mental images. I reported in the first lecture that judging is usually described as the product of combining mental images. Tree is a mental image, as is green. The tree is green is a combination of mental images that would add up to a judgment. Our psychologist does not in the least regard that as judging, where a conclusion is involved, for he says, and all his reasoning is well founded, that when it comes to combining mental images it can also be a question of establishing the impossibility of combining them. <clears throat> an example might be an attempt to combine the mental images tree and golden. If we are trying to combine these images instead of tree and green in a true statement, we would have to say that no tree is golden or something of the sort. What in a case like this is the prerequisite for making a judgment? It is that we have to make an existential statement in every such judgment and that this statement be valid. Out of the combination of the mental images involved in the tree is green, we can form the existential statement, a green tree is. Then we have made a judgment. 
and only in trying to make the existential statement do we notice that the combining of mental images can establish a fact. A golden tree is, however, does not work. The question then is whether a judgment can issue from a combining of mental images, whether an existential statement can be made. Now I ask you whether, after examining the whole content of your soul life, you find it possible to shape an existential statement without the involvement of anything else but a combining of mental images. What impels you to shape the existential statement a green tree is out of the combination of mental images in a tree is green? Only something that is not at first present in your soul, for you can find nothing to support it in your whole soul content. And if you want to find the transition from a combination of mental images to an existential statement, to a statement that decides something, you have to go beyond your own soul life to what you feel to be a relating of your soul to some element other than itself. This means that there is no other possibility of finding the transition from a combining of mental images to a judgment than by way of perception. If what we can call perception is added to the combination of mental images, then and only then is it possible to say that we can form a judgment in the sense of this presentation. Then we have shown, however, that we cannot state anything else concerning our mental picturing than that it simply lives in our soul, and that we need something more than what is in our soul if we want to progress from mental picturing to judging. When we consider the movements of the soul, or emotions, everyone will surely find it easier than it was in the case of mental images to reach a conviction that they live in the soul only, for they could not otherwise have such an individual character in such a variety of human beings. We do not need to waste many words about the fact that our emotions live in the soul. Now, Let's ask whether it is at all possible to attribute existence to mental images and emotions in the soul, despite our awareness that they cannot afford us a judgment in the first place, since they are inner soul processes. If contact with the outer world does not take place through perception, if we cannot properly speak of percepts, the question has to be, whether there is any justification to speak of our mental images and emotions as though they lived only in the soul. It might be pointed out, where the life of mental images is concerned, that individuals living in mental images do not have a sense of being complete masters of these images. They do not have a sense that there is nothing compulsory about them. If we keep in mind what was learned in the lecture of two days ago, that error is something spiritual, that it is supersensible, and that it can enter the realm of our mental images, and our mental images can in turn overcome error, for if they couldn't there would be no possibility of surmounting error, then we would have to acknowledge that our souls are the scene of a battle between error and another element. Error, however, is a spiritual element, 
Consequently, we must have something to oppose to it that can hold its own, otherwise we would never be able to surmount it. There is such a possibility. Everyone knows that. Since error is of the spirit, we cannot conquer it through purely external perceptions. In the lectures on anthroposophy, I pointed out that the senses cannot really err. Goethe once stressed this especially strongly. The senses cannot deceive. What goes on in the soul is the only source of error. It doesn't take much thought to see that error can be overcome only within the soul, and this by resorting to mental picturing. Mental picturing enables us to surmount error. We saw yesterday, however, that error is a distorted species of something else, of what was referred to as the element that lifts us into higher regions of our soul life. Error's basic characteristic is its lack of agreement with the world of perception. We realized that on the path that we have to take to enter the spiritual world, we also have to devote ourselves in meditation and concentration to mental images that are not in keeping with external perceptions. The Rose Cross was cited as an example of a mental image that does not harmonize with external perception and is therefore like error in that it is not consistent with external perception. We saw, however, that if error were to be used on the path of spiritual life, it would affect us destructively, and that experience shows this to be so. Now, how do we arrive at mental images? that have something in common with error in that they are not in keeping with the external world of perception, but nevertheless awaken healthy higher soul forces in us in an entirely sound and proper way. How, in other words, do we come from a merely false mental image to a symbolic image such as has often been described and of which the Rose Cross is one of the most outstanding examples? We do so when we do not allow ourselves to be guided by the external sense world, the world of perception, or by the forces responsible for causing us to err. We must turn away from both kinds of influence, that of the external world of sense perception and that of the world that induces us to err. We must appeal to forces in our souls that have first to be awakened. They were characterized two days ago as stirrings prompted in us only by the moral and the beautiful. We have to break with our drives and passions in the way they are impressed into us by a world that can be described only as external. We must work upon ourselves to call forth on a trial basis soul forces that we do not as yet actually possess. When we awaken in our soul's forces not as yet actual excuse me, let me read that again. When we awaken in our souls forces not as yet actually in our possession, we attain the possibility of forming symbolic mental images that in a certain sense have objective validity, though it is a validity that does not apply to the world of percepts. We form something often described as the mental image of a human being standing before us as a being who in a certain sense cannot affirm itself, but must rather declare that its nature, as it is at present, must be overcome. 
Then we set beside this image another, one impossible to perceive, because it belongs neither to the present nor to the past, but to the future. It is an image that expresses the fact that human beings sense that they must strive to develop a higher nature, one that enables us to become master of everything not yet recognized as belonging to us in our present form. Then, out of such inner stirrings, we put together mental images that the world of percepts would never prompt us to connect. We put together the black cross, the symbol of everything that must be eradicated, and the red roses, the symbol of life that must sprout from it. In meditation, we picture the rose cross as a mental image that can be described as unreal, but that we have not been able to put together in the way a simple error originates, but rather as born of the loftiest striving of our soul. We have thus given birth out of our loftiest soul stirrings to a mental image that does not correspond to any external perception. If we make use of this mental image, devoting ourselves to it in deepest meditation and allowing it to take effect on our soul, we become aware that our soul is being developed in a wholesome manner and that it can rise to greater heights than it has reached before. We experience the fact that our soul is capable of evolving. Here we have a picture that in its relationship to the external world of perception really coincides with an error, at least to the extent that it does not picture anything from that external world. We have thus done something that leads to what is right, that leads to something that reveals that it in itself is right. Now we ask ourselves if we can give everything entering us from external perception, control over such a mental picture that has absolutely nothing in common with external perceptions? Can we lend it the power to exercise any force that will make of the mental excuse me, of the mental image something different in our soul from what it makes of error? Let me read that sentence again. Can we lend it the power to exercise any force that will make of the mental picture something different in our soul from what it makes of error. We have to answer that the element in us that makes of this symbol something so entirely different from what error could give rise to is the polar opposite of the force at work in error. And if two days ago we could say that we perceived luciferic forces in error, we can now say that in the transforming of the symbolic mental image that takes place in our own soul, in the wholesome guiding of the symbolic image to a higher level of perception, it becomes apparent that we have in the lofty stirrings we sense in ourselves the divine spiritual element that is the exact opposite of the luciferic. <clears throat> As you ponder this connection more deeply, you will see more clearly that through the inner experience of transforming a symbolic picture, you directly perceive and sense the inner activity of the supersensible. When it becomes apparent that the supersensible acts in us, that it causes a certain completion and strengthening, then something very different grows from what was previously a mere image in the soul, from what lived within the soul. 
This must now be referred to as a conclusion, something not produced by the soul as it exists initially. Perception can produce a conclusion in the act of judging. Similarly, a mental image can, inwardly, accomplish the result just described by means of the process I have delineated. Just as a mental image coming, as a result of perception, into contact with the ordinary external world leads to judgment, so does the inner life of the mental image, which is not directionless, but allows itself to be guided in the manner described, lead beyond itself as a mere mental image, and become something that, though it is not a judgment, makes it a meaningful image, pointing beyond the soul. This is what we may call imagination, in the term's true meaning. So we may say that the mental image, in coming into connection with the external world, points on the one side to judgment, and in undergoing the described process, points on the other to true imagination. Just as a percept is not simply a mental image, so an imagination is not merely a mental image. Through perception, the life of mental image, excuse me, through, through perception, the life of mental pictures touches an external world that is still undefined at first. Through the process described, mental imaging moves into what we could call the imaginative world. Just as there is, in fact, a transition from simply putting mental pictures together in a tree is green to the judgment a green tree is, so too there exists a transition from simply the life of mental images to what lies in the filled image in the imagination. This image is not filled with some external spatial world. Thus we have the process before us that fills the pictures in imaginative life. <clears throat> now there is something occupying a position between imagination and mental picturing. The nature of imagination is such that it makes its reality keenly felt at the moment it appears. When our soul really achieves imaginations, it senses in its life of mental picturing something entirely similar to its life in perception. In the latter it feels itself in immediate touch with an external physical world. In imagining it feels itself immediately in touch with an external world, but an external world of the spirit. When it enters mental images that are really pressing toward imagination, that spirit is as compelling as the material world is. We find it difficult to imagine a tree as golden while we are connected with external reality. Such contact compels us to imagine in a specific way, and it is only our contact with the outer world that compels us. Similarly, we experience a sense of necessity exerted by spirit when mental representation rises to the level of imagination. <clears throat> when the mental images rise to imagination, however, we know at once that the life of mental images goes on independent of all the routes whereby mental images otherwise make up their content. 
In ordinary life, mental images fill themselves with a content derived from percepts conveyed by our eyes and ears and so on, all of which provide the nourishment for their life. In imagining, we allow the spirit to do the filling of the mental pictures. Nothing springing from the bodily organs that might affect our soul content is allowed to participate. Nothing that enters through our eyes and ears may or does take part. There we have a direct awareness of the fact that we are free of everything that might have its source in our bodily makeup. We are as free of all that as we are when looking at the matter in an unprejudiced way. We can say that we are free in sleep of all the processes of our physical body. For a person engaged in imagining, everything is as it is in sleep, the only difference being that imaginative consciousness takes the place of sleep's unconsciousness. That which is otherwise empty, that which has separated itself from the body, is filled with the mental images of imagination. There is no other difference between a person sleeping and another imagining than that ordinary sleepers are outside their physical bodies with a consciousness empty of mental images, in a certain sense, whereas those imagining are filled with mental images. An intermediate state can also come about in that a sleeper might be teeming with imaginative mental images but lack the power to bring them to consciousness. That could happen. It is a possible condition. You see from ordinary life that it is possible. I will just call your attention to the fact that in your ordinary life you perceive a great deal that you do not bring to consciousness. You may, for example, walk along a street perceiving all sorts of things, but much of it unconsciously. Often you can convince yourselves that you have perceived things unconsciously when, for example, you have a dream about strange things. There are dreams that are very strange in this respect. Imagine, for example, dreaming of a man standing with a woman and saying something to her. You remember the dream. You have to admit, as you think it over, that such a situation did indeed take place, but you would not have known of it if you had not dreamt about it. This same man and this woman actually stood before you somewhere, but you paid no attention to them. Only when you were free of all other impressions and began to dream did this otherwise unnoticed picture enter your consciousness. Such things often occur. Thus perceptions that really did arise can leave the consciousness completely untouched. <clears throat> Imaginations, too, can live in the soul without registering in our consciousness. They cannot appear immediately as imaginations. Then they enter into our awareness in a way similar to the perceptions just described. Such perceptions that we have had without registering them appear occasionally in the semi-consciousness of dreaming. In the same way, imaginations that we have not had the power to register in consciousness can shine into our waking life and become active there, transformed as dreams are, fluctuating and flowing into such perceptions that would ordinarily stand clearly before us. Thus it happens that such imaginations actually intrude into what is otherwise everyday awareness, undergoing thereby a transformation when what is termed fantasy is active in our consciousness, genuine fantasy based on cosmic truth, 
the true source of all artistic and other creation that springs from human productivity. It was because of that fact that Goethe, who was well acquainted with the artistic process, so often stressed that fantasy is by no means an element that assembles phenomena in an arbitrary manner, but that it is subject to the laws of truth. The laws of truth work entirely out of the world of imagination. Only because they take effect in everyday life do they undergo change and interweave with the everyday content of consciousness, shaping the world of ordinary percepts in a free way. Thus, we really have in genuine fantasy something midway between mere mental picturing and imagination. When fantasy is not conceived of as something of which it can be said, as often happens, quote, fantasy is not true, unquote, but rather when it is realistically grasped, it bears witness to a further development of mental images in the direction in which they can pour themselves into the realm of the supersensible, the world of imagination. Here we have one of the points where we can witness the streaming of the spiritual world directly into our ordinary world. Now let's turn our attention to the other side of the matter, the side of the emotions. It has already been stated that the soul investigator whom we are discussing remains within the realm of the soul and therefore follows the impulses of the will only to the point of examining the emotions. When a person carries out an action, underlying that action, of course, is a desire, a passion, a feeling, or an urge that, looked at from within the soul, is considered an emotion. Nothing happens through an emotion alone, however. So long as we remain in the soul, nothing needs to happen. We can experience an emotion very intensely, but still nothing is achieved that should be achieved through the will, namely that something takes place that is independent of the soul. What remains within the soul <clears throat> is not a true expression of the will. If the soul were never able to go beyond itself, if it experienced only in desiring this or that emotion, ranging from reverence to deepest disgust, nothing would happen independent of the soul. We must therefore say that in having to recognize the will in its true form as a fact, the whole realm of emotion directs us beyond the soul. The realm of the emotions, however, points beyond the soul in a most unusual way. To where, then, does it direct us? In the case of simplest acts of will, moving a hand, taking a step, striking a table with an object, doing anything in which the will is involved, we can see that in reality something occurs that we can call a transition of our emotions, the inner impulse to action to something that is no longer within our soul, and yet in a certain way is still within us. What happens as the result of a genuine will impulse that brings our body into motion and causes such activity to continue into an external act is not by any means summed up in the soul's content. For no one can follow all the actions that run their course 
from the decision to lift a hand to actually lifting it. On the one hand, we are led by our emotions into an external element, but it is an external element of an entirely different nature, our own exterior our or bodily nature. We descend from the soul into our own corporeality, but we do not understand how we do that in external life. Think what an effort we would have to make if instead of moving a hand we had to construct some apparatus to do the same thing by means of springs and so on, producing the same effect as if we were to say, I want to pick up the chalk and move a hand to do so. <clears throat> Picture what would have to be set up in order to have a tool accomplish what goes on between the idea of wanting to pick up the chalk and actually lifting it. Just think of everything that you would have to do. We cannot conceive of it for the simple reason that we are not capable of it, and there is also no such device. One does exist in our human organism, however. Something occurs in the world that is very clearly not in our consciousness. If it were in our everyday consciousness, we could easily fashion such a device. If we knew everything that goes on between the idea, I want to pick up the chalk, and actually lifting it, we could construct the corresponding apparatus to do the job. There is something taking place that must be counted as belonging to our bodily nature, yet it remains wholly unknown to us. We must ask, what would have to take place to make us aware of the activity behind the movement of one's hand or another willed bodily movement? A reality that is outside us would have to rise into consciousness instead of stopping short of it. It would require the kind of process that takes place in our own body without entering consciousness, a process just as external but intimately connected with us in the same way that one's hand movement is for consciousness. Thus we would have to have something that belongs intimately to us and yet plays into us as though from outside something that we would experience in our soul and yet be experienced in the soul as an outer element. It would have to be as artfully constructed as a device for picking up a piece of chalk and be similarly based on firm external laws in our consciousness. Something would have to enter our consciousness that would then work lawfully within it. Its nature would be such that we would not think as we do with other kinds of willed activities, such as when we say, on the one hand there is a thought of picking up the chalk, and on the other, firmly separated from it, something beyond my knowledge, a process that at best I can view as a perception of something outer. In fact, these two things would have to coincide to become exactly the same thing. The event would have to be directly connected with soul awareness, coinciding as though all the aspects of the motion of the hand took place not outside consciousness but within it. It is this process that takes place in intuition. We can therefore say that when we grasp with our own consciousness something that lives entirely within it, not as mere knowledge but as a process, we are dealing with intuition, intuition in the higher sense described in title How to Know Higher Worlds. Thus within intuition 
we are dealing with the wielding will. That extremely intelligent psychologist Brentano finds only emotions among the ordinary aspects of the soul and not a trace of will, because it is not present there, since the will lies outside normal consciousness. Only the consciousness rising into the higher regions finds in itself something that at the same time is a process. That is where the world enters into consciousness. That is intuition. Here, too, there is another transition, only it is not as easily noticed as the transition from mental picturing through fantasy to imagination. This transition occurs when we learn to observe ourselves such that we are not merely, excuse me, that we are not able merely to will something and then carry out an action, simply having thought and action separated by a gap. It is when we begin to extend our emotions over the quality of our acts. That, in many cases, is quite difficult to do, but it does happen in life that we can have a kind of pleasure or revulsion at our own actions. I do not believe that an unprejudiced observer of life can deny that it is possible to extend the emotions, to allow the characteristics of our own state of being to stream into our actions to the point that we have what can be described as sympathy or antipathy for an action in our emotions. This experiencing of our own actions in our emotions can be heightened. When it is intensified to the point where it becomes what it should be, the transition between emotion and intuition is what we can call human conscience, the stirrings of conscience. If we try to locate conscience, we find it in this transition. We can therefore say that our soul is open on two sides, to imagination on the one side and to intuition on the other. It is closed on the side where, through perception, we come up against our physical bodies. Our soul experiences fulfill me read that again. Our soul experiences fulfillment on entering the imaginative realm, and again coupled with an event on entering the realm of intuition. Since both intuition and imagination have to occupy a single soul, how can some sort of mediation, a kind of connection, come about between them? We have in imagination a picture, a filled image of the spiritual world, and in intuition an event that the spiritual world precipitates. An event that approaches us in the ordinary physical world disturbs our peace. We try to find out about it and discover its underlying essence. That is also true of that event that is in the spiritual world and penetrates our consciousness. Let us examine that more closely. How does intuition enter our awareness? We must first seek it in the direction of the emotions. It penetrates into our consciousness, into our soul, but from the side of the emotions rather than from that of mental picturing. That is how things stand with intuition. It can penetrate our consciousness, our soul, without our being able to make a mental picture of it. We said of imaginations, too, that we can have them without being aware of them. They come into fantasy because they work directly within mental picturing. 
but we must put intuition on the other side, on the side of emotions. In the whole of human life, intuition lies completely on the side of emotions. At this point I would like to give an example that I recently spoke of, a well-known dream. It is about a couple who had a son. He was taken ill quite suddenly, and though he received all possible medical help, he died the same day. His parents were deeply affected by his death. They became totally absorbed in thinking about him, that is, their memories were completely occupied with him. One day it became apparent that during the night both parents had had the same dream. They told each other about it. You can find this dream referred to by a more or less materialistic investigator of dreams who goes through all kinds of contortions to explain the dream but cannot deny its existence. The parents reported that in the dream their son appeared to them and besought them to have his grave opened, for he had been buried alive. The parents made every possible effort to find out whether that had actually happened, for they lived in a country where the authorities would not allow the grave to be examined after the passing of so much time. Now, what will enable us to understand this dream, which I have brought up only to throw light on the relationship of intuition to the emotions? You can assume at once that because the parents' memories were so constantly occupied with their son, who was present in the spiritual world as a spiritual being after dying, their thoughts built a bridge to him. The directing of their thoughts created a bridge that connected them with the continuing individuality of the sun. You certainly will not be able to accept that there was nothing more than a subjective element in the revelations of the dead sun that must have been present after all the veils separating the living and the dead had been penetrated, because both parents had the same dream. Or it might be so-called chance that both dreamed alike but then everything imaginable could be explained away in that way. In reality, however, there was a connection that night between the son and his parents, and he did tell them something, or rather instilled something, into their souls. Since the parents were quite unable to raise to consciousness what, had, what he had communicated to them, it was only the dream image that contained familiar mental images that stood like a shield, in front of the real occurrence. The son wanted to communicate something of an entirely different nature, but the parents had to clothe it in a mental image that they took from the material of their usual conceptual life. This presented itself as a dream that obscured the nature of the actual event. Let us take another dream. A farmer's wife dreams that she goes to church in the city. She dreams every phase of the experience, how she enters the church, how the minister stands there with his hands uplifted, preaching with extraordinary ardor, and the enthusiasm this engenders in her. Now a strange transformation comes about. The preacher's shape changes. He receives wings and feathers and a different voice that more and more resembles a crowing. Finally, he changes completely into a crowing rooster. The woman awakens to hear a rooster really crowing outside the house. As you can well imagine, it was the crowing of the rooster that caused the whole dream. You will also have to admit that this crowing could have been the cause of many other dreams. Some young rascal could have dreamt that he was startled by the crowing of the rooster and had then, perhaps, dreamt that he had thought about something for a long time, for instance, how he could open a lock.
Then another, more clever rascal, gave him a suggestion that turned into a rooster's crowing. You see from this that the mental image that obscures the reality need have nothing to do with what the soul actually experiences. What did the parents experience, for example? They experienced a connection with a revelation from the sun that flowed straight into their souls. In the other case, the farmer's wife was a very devout woman, reveling completely in an atmosphere permeated with piety. She had really experienced that. As she was wrenched from sleep, she still had the sense of having been somewhere else but her entire consciousness was claimed by the rooster's crowing, which obscured the experience by appearing to be the preacher in the church. Soul experience thus becomes what is dreamed. When individuals become practiced in relating dreams to reality, it appears that before they come to the inner reality, they must pass through a soul state of being uplifted or of grief in short, of some tension or release of the feelings. The mental images related to the experiences in the spiritual world usually dissolve into a kind of nothingness. One has to form very different mental images of the actual events. In other words, spiritual events are closer to the emotions than to mental picturing, since the mental images are not at all relevant to the soul's spiritual events. The events that project into our emotions during sleep are in the spiritual world, but we are unable to reach far enough with our capacity for mental picturing to discern and identify them. Thus it is possible to show that intuition also stands in a particular relationship to the emotions. That is why mystics have a kind of vague, dim experience of the higher worlds before forming clear mental images of them. Many such mystics are satisfied with that and many with even less. Those who truly meditate in the higher worlds, however, all describe in the same way the soul conditions of devotion, their frame of mind in directly experiencing the spiritual world. If we wanted to progress further, through this intuition that plays into our feelings, we would not succeed very well, for that is better undertaken from the other side. In order to avoid a general wallowing in emotions and to come instead to a concrete seeing of the spiritual world, we must try to develop imaginations and turn our attention to them regarding that world. Then a connection is gradually established in our lives between intuition, which is still more merely sensed rather than understood, and imagination, which consists of images only and is still more or less afloat in unreality. We discover the connection when we finally approach the thought that we have now come to the beings that can carry out the spiritual deed. Our arrival at those beings we call inspiration. We have here, in a sense, the reverse of the processes that we find in the external corporeal world. Here we have the thoughts we form about things, whereas there the things simply exist, confronting us, and we form thoughts about them. <clears throat> here the thing or event that first appears in intuition for the emotions is completely indistinct, and the imagination as such would hang in the air. 
It is only when the two come together and imagination works via inspiration into intuition, when, in other words, our mental imaging leads further to imagination, and we sense the imagination as coming to us from beings, that the essence of these beings streams into us as a process. Imagination provides us with something that streams in from intuition, and we perceive in the event a content that may be likened to the content of the mental image. We perceive these thoughts, for which we have prepared ourselves by means of imagination, to be contained in the event that intuition has given us. I have described to you today how on the other side of our soul life we human beings grow into the spiritual world. I have, of course, anticipated a few matters that spiritual science alone is able to contribute from spiritual research, but it was necessary to do so in order to be able more easily to understand the main topic of tomorrow's lecture, a description of the uniqueness, the essential and unique nature of the spiritual world itself. The end of Lecture 11